9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am joined today by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center and Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund and MSNBC and a lot of other places where you might see Evelyn Farkas, uh, though you won't see her right now because she's in hiding somewhere in the Senate <laughs> office That's building, um, which is it's kind of cool. I'm not sure. Why are you in hiding in the Senate? Because office? I have a meeting right after this. And so the transportation time would not have allowed me to get here. So I thought, okay, let me get in place. And since I was a longtime Senate staffer, I know how these things work. I know where I can slither in and, you know, hide out. Wow. But I know it's a terrible thing because I'm going to ruin it for everyone. Yeah, and also, you know, so publicly, you know, Rosa is also a part time police officer and she could probably. No, no, I have no. Not here. The Capitol Police will kick her right out. Wow. That's right. A jurisdictional exactly standoff. Right. And besides, I I think it's uh, I'm just going to hope that maybe sometime Evelyn will share with me the places that you can hide in the Capitol, because that is crucial knowledge. Where can you go for a quiet phone call or better still, if you need to take a nap? Yes, that's true. And then there's the deep place. Exactly. Uh, I could a, take a nap here, too. It's very quiet. It, there's also a vault in like the fourth sub-basement of the Capitol where members of Congress store their consciences. They just never get touched the whole time that they're up there. <laughs> Stop. Uh, no, it's true. I used to work there, you know, a um, long time ago, and I, re- I remember it well. So, look, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the subject that we tend to, you know, get back to one way or another. But I want to talk about it uh, in the context of, you know, our beat here at DSR. Uh Evelyn, the president of the United States um, has talked to one world leader more than any other world leader. And that world leader, he doesn't really give us the details of the calls, but apparently in the past few days, last week, president of the United States reached out to Vladimir Putin and said, let's have another call. And they had a 90 minute call and they talked about the Mueller report and Vladimir Putin smiled at the results. Yeah, no, it's so Uh, fantastic. And it's cute. Yeah, no, it's those love bugs. And, um, and, and, and yet, you know, something in me said, this is a little strange that, you know, there's hearings on the Hill about all of this stuff. There's the Mueller report. There's the prospect, I mean, of, I mean, the Mueller report came out and said the Russians attacked us. Nobody's right. debating that. But but Trump comes off the call and it turns out he still doesn't believe it or won't acknowledge it. Um, what was your, your take on this um, leader to leader meeting? Right. I mean, well, first of all, it was unclear why he was initiating the call, as you said. You know, it could be that they want to get arms control talks started because there have been a couple things in the press about the fact that they would like to 
move ahead with some sort of replacement for the INF treaty that involves intermediate nuclear forces treaty that involves not just Russia, but China, which of course is a hugely ambitious undertaking. They also have the issue of the New START agreement, which caps the level of the strategic nuclear forces in the United States and Russia expiring in 2021. And given the complexity and the way the Russians negotiate, it probably is not going to be an overnight thing to get that extended. So if I had to guess and be um, generous, I would say, okay, uh, the president was maybe trying to open a discussion with the with his Russian counterpart saying we're going to have these arms control negotiations. My team's going to be working this with your team. Um, but the timing is, of course, odd. And, you know, the Russian president, as I mentioned in the earlier podcast, had just met this past week with Kim Jong-un. We also found out from Secretary Pompeo that when uh, Nicolas Maduro, the now discredited former leader of Venezuela, was uh, reportedly getting ready to leave Venezuela under pressure from the opposition, that the Russians actually stepped in and said, oh, no, you don't, you're staying here. Um, and that was from Secretary Pompeo. He actually said that publicly. So um, there wasn't any reason to be calling the Russians to say, hey, you know, we agree on X, Y, or Z, because again, with the North Koreans, the Russians were saying that America should be nicer, that America could, should give some concessions on sanctions in exchange for things that North Korea has supposedly done. And, and again, as I mentioned on Venezuela, the Russians were working counter to U.S. policy, stated policy up to the level of the president. So, um, it wasn't the right moment to have this conversation. And then, of course, as, you know, what you did, what you left out, David, was that what we know about the call, we know more, once again, from the Kremlin than we do from the White House, that the readouts that we got from Putin to include a photograph of him having the conversation with President Trump, uh, you know, were more fulsome, if you will, than what we got out of our president. Well, you know, Rosa, when I look at this, and maybe I'm just cynical or punch drunk or something like that. But, you know, I look at this um, whenever Trump comes off a call with Putin, he ends up talking the Putin line one way or another. In this particular case, you know, he said he and I, you know, Putin and Trump smiled at the Mueller findings, you know, and that there was no finding of collusion, which, of course, <laughs> I find a little weird considering, you know, the we were just colluding. <laughs> but they were colluding about their finding on collusion. But, you know, OK. And then, oh, you know, on North, on North Korea, um, as Evelyn just said, the Russians have a position. And lo and behold, Kim Jong-un fires off missiles. And the American take on it is more or less more the Russian position than it was the traditional American position or the mid-level official American position. And on Venezuela... Um, the, you know, the U.S. was sort of there on the verge of stepping in. And I think Guaido thought he was going to step in. And, 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 and we sort of didn't. We pulled back. And I'm willing to bet you, and maybe we'll come back to this, Evelyn, in a second, because I know you have some thoughts on it. But I'm willing to bet you that what happens in Venezuela may be a transition, but it may not be to Guaido. It may be to the Russian guy. The, the Russians have their own candidate to replace Maduro, and that'll be seen as the compromise, and the Russians will get what they want out of this whole thing. But it, in any event, it does seem, once again, like the president of the United States is dancing to the Kremlin's uh, tune, Rosa. 
Um, <laughs> well, gee, David, you're right. It does sort of seem that way now, doesn't it? But there's no collusion. No collusion. Um, there's <laughs> just a friendship, a deep, mutually respectful, affectionate friendship between two manly men who who share so many interests in a world they, they are like they are like Gulliver's in a world full of Lilliputians. And, and so, of course, they they just see eye to eye on many issues. And I, I, I it's so sad that you're so cynical when we have a beautiful like thing like this happening. You know, you're right. I feel very bad about myself. <laughs> um, you should. I feel bad about myself because there is a and 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 frankly, you know, what's wrong with this, you know, this is the president I'm of the U.S. I'm feeling very bad about you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the, 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 you know, the president of the United States and the president of Russia, they get along. They talk to each other. They share ideas. One of them offers ideas. The other one says, yes, sir, I'll do that. But it's like it's a thing. You know, it's not a war. It's a thing. It's not right? a war, Indeed. right? You know, it we're not. nuclear war between superpowers. I mean, I mean, what do you want? Uh, uh, you want you want great power conflict, or you want um, slavish, subsequious uh, devotion of the U.S. president to the Russian president? Because uh, it looks like we're getting number two. It, but it number does, two, it, lo- it does look to, like not, not it does look like we're getting us. number two. But I don't think <laughs> don't that's not pour what you cold meant. Water on us. <laughs> yeah, well, well on. because. Because Putin sees Trump as weak, and he sees America as weak, and that, for Putin, spells opportunity to get what he wants. And, you know, in Venezuela, he is not giving up there. He's going he's gonna to hold on and keep Maduro in, or, I mean, that was an intriguing alternative that you posed, David, but his guy is Maduro. He doesn't want—Putin doesn't want any regime change, because that, to him, spells the beginning of the end for him. And the only way he would do a deal with us is if we gave him Ukraine, which, of course, we, is not ours to give. Um, although, so, although it seems like we've done that already, but go on. No. there's And they just had a peaceful democratic transition. They have a, a very interesting um, new president. Um, he's the only Jewish president in the world, uh, you know, Jewish head of state uh, or president. Well, I guess the Second one, sorry, Israel has a Jewish president. <laughs> that <laughs> other guy who should be in jail is the other one. <laughs> no, not Netanyahu. He's the prime minister, but the president. Um, but nevertheless, Z- Zelensky is kind of a spicy guy. Like he, he, he pushed back on Putin when Putin uh, started issuing as a rebuttal to the election in Ukraine. Putin started issuing uh, passports to ethnic Russian speakers in Ukraine, Russian passports, that is. Zelensky t- tweeted back saying, well, I don't really know what the upside of a Russian passport is unless you want to have, and then he rattled off all the disadvantages of living in Russia, you know, no no freedom to speak your mind, et cetera, et cetera. So um, uh, all, all that goes to show, all, that's actually a demonstration of Putin stepping in and doing something to poke the eye. He's poking Ukraine's eye, and he may be feel like he can do more. He's testing Zelensky now, um, but he's clearly constantly testing us, and he's finding us to be weak. So um, that's always a situation that makes me nervous. On top of that, what I heard this past week from a Russian oligarch who no longer lives in Russia um, so, you know, you can take what he says with a grain of salt, but nevertheless, he, he has good contacts back there. Do you like and hang out with Russian said, oligarchs? 
No, I get invited to um, very staid conference rooms where they give pretty oh. emotional and alarming um, assessments. And so, so what this particular fellow said was that um, Putin is is weak now, weaker. He's come down off of his kind of sugar high of post-Ukraine, post-Crimea uh, uh, annexation, and so now he's he's weak and he's paranoid and. He, what does that mean for us in America? It means that Putin's going to lash out internationally because he sees us as weak and because he's internally weak and he needs to prove that he's strong. He needs to shore up support. Well, I guess we'll have to see on, on this front. I, I want to jump around a little bit here in order to sort of cover all the ground that we've got. And I want to shift to a related topic. Um, uh, and that is... Uh, the 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 case against Trump on these issues of collusion and obstruction, and there was a development on that uh, that took place uh, early this week, um, in which 370 former United States prosecutors, dating back to the Eisenhower administration, a bipartisan group, came out and said, based on the Mueller findings, they would have um, charged the president with multiple felony counts of obstruction. And uh, uh, Rosa, as as our sort of resident Supreme Court, I'm just wondering how you view this. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I have sort of mixed feelings. I, I, I think that in this situation, they're almost certainly right to say that I'm not sure it will persuade anybody because we live in an era in which uh, every candidate and every cause uh, now takes the approach of let's see if we can get, you know, 400 X's or Y's or Z's to put their name to a letter. And, and you know, there are, there are many, many hundreds of federal prosecutors uh, in the country there, just as there are many, many military officers and many you know, any category of people who you want to find, you, you can probably find some to sign a letter. So so I think that they're right. But I also think that the fact that this letter exists is, is unlikely to move the needle for anybody. Um, because, you know, even if they were wrong, it's probably not too hard to find people to sign a letter um, saying anything in particular these days. Um, but but no, I, I, I actually think it is quite shocking and it is partly the fault of the the media that the White House has done a pretty good job spinning the Mueller report, you know, as as having said, quote, no, no collusion uh, and, you know, no, no criminal activity by the president. In, and, and indeed, even so-called I think I was complaining about this possibly last week, even so-called liberal outlets you know, like National Public Radio, I keep hearing, I keep hearing uh, uh, people saying on NPR, NPR newscasters saying things like, um, well, the Mueller found no collusion, you know, that there was no conspiracy or collaboration between the Trump campaign uh, and the Russians. Um, and just saying that as if that is, in fact, what the Mueller report says, whereas, in fact, the Mueller report very clearly does not say there was no collaboration or conspiracy. The Mueller report says uh, we were not able to 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 find sufficient evidence to move forward on on charges of 
conspiracy or collaboration, which is quite different from there wasn't, you know, that the the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as they they are fond of saying in in uh, law school and detective school and so forth. Um, um, so you know, it's it's stunning to me the degree to which even the media has sort of found itself. Uh, getting sucked into the White House's narrative about what's going on when, you know, the reality is that the Mueller report was a, a damning report. You know, it was damning ethically. Uh, it, it, it was, if it were not a sitting president, as the letter from these 300 or however many prosecutors it is says, uh, if it were someone other than a sitting president, he almost certainly would be prosecuted right now. He'd be being indicted right now for at least for obstruction of justice. Uh, and it should be a report that is damning politically. Well, it should be, but it doesn't seem to be having that effect. In fact, Evelyn, many Democrats don't seem to be willing to take any you know strong measures on the Hill um, uh, as it is. I mean, I think this week we we, we have seen or, or or will see um, contempt charges against the uh, Attorney General for failing to appear in the House, uh, and there will be measures like that. But it doesn't seem like anybody is really willing to pull the trigger on what obstruction should lead to, which is impeachment. Well, I think so. First of all, I should note that I got booted from that quiet room, so I'm in the hallway now. <laughs> but so it might echo. A well, little. how did they? But, how did they boot you? Did somebody um, come in and say you? They had a meeting. It's it is a meeting room. The hearing room is a meeting room when they don't have a hearing. So. But you didn't um, know, like a guard but I told didn't them come it was up. Deep, I, t- I said it was deep state radio in case they're interested in listening to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's how I we advertise. build our audience. Exactly. So. Um, so I know as they take me away in handcuffs, you know, I'll tell the Capitol Police to tune in. Um, but so, uh, look, I think it's a little bit premature to be giving the Democrats a hard time about their oversight because they I mean, on the House side, they just got the gavel. You know, the the reason I mean, we're behind relative to, you know, the Nixon era, because in the Nixon era, they were the Congress was already conducting investigations, you know, by the time you got the, the clock, you know, um, came this far along in time. So if you if you contrast the timelines, the the on the hill they started investigating a lot earlier before there was public um, before there were reports coming out of the administration. So the issue now is that the Democrats have to move quickly and expeditiously, and they're balancing the fact that their colleagues on the other side of the aisle have no interest whatsoever in holding the president and his cabinet uh, um, and all the folks who are involved in the campaign involved in colluding or cooperating with Russia accountable. So this is going to take some time. And, you know, maybe what will end up happening is in the interest of standing up for law and order and justice there will be an attempt, there will be a, a vote taken on impeachment in the lame duck, you know, after the November elections, because then it will be deemed as less political, if you will, but still taking a stand on what's right and what's wrong. I, you know, I, I would say that that's one, out, uh, that's one potential outcome, but th- another outcome might be that you have the investigations continuing and things come out. I mean, Mueller now has a date to come up and testify. So we'll see how this unfolds. There, are, there is the possibility that 
things will happen that will change the Republicans' perspective. I, I know it's less than 50 percent, but you can't rule it out entirely. Well, Rosa, you know, one of our favorite subjects here on Deep State Radio is, are we in a constitutional crisis? And I ask this question periodically, and then you periodically <laughs> respond. <laughs> Poo-poo it. You say, no, we're not in a constitutional crisis. Um, but then you always make this kind of good point that, you know, our, consti- our constitution is kind of a crisis. Exactly. That it's kind of flawed in some fundamental ways. And one of the ways we've discovered it's flawed is that there are no checks and balances if one House of Congress, such as the Senate, is controlled by the same party as the president and has the same same lack of uh, uh, sort of morality or or sense of obligation to the Constitution um, and can block this kind of thing, uh, like an impeachment process or the trial side of the impeachment process. Um, and, and so we're in a system right now where if the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice says you can't levy charges against a president and the Senate refuses to... Uh, uh, as they seem likely to, to convict a president of any wrongdoing, that the president of the United States is actually above the law. The Economist made this point last week, but that he, that he is above the law and that he, you know, as he recognizes this, he seems to be increasingly doing things to flaunt that fact, not, you know, telling his staff not to go to meetings. Uh, uh, to 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 submit to subpoenas, to uh, provide uh, uh, required documents required by the Congress, um, uh, telling border officers that they don't have to follow the law. You know, he'll get them off the hook. Uh, he seems to be sort of testing this flaw or this blind spot in the Constitution. And isn't that a bit of a crisis? A, a constitutional crisis. <laughs> So, two points. One, not to be overly optimistic, but but you know it ain't over till it's over, um, and the it is entirely possible that President Trump will face charges when he is no longer in office, stemming from his behavior while he was in office. So I, I don't I don't you know while I think some cynicism and pessimism is is uh, entirely appropriate. I, I'm also not quite ready to give up uh, on the notion that there may be accountability, not only political accountability, but ultimately accountability under criminal law for Donald Trump one of these days. I, th- I think we don't know yet. Um, um, and I, But I also think, and, and this, I mean, this, as you know, is my, my argument about the Constitution, is that Asking whether we're in a constitutional crisis is the wrong question to be asking. Um, who cares if we're in a constitutional crisis or not? We're clearly in a political and ethical crisis um, and have been for some time. Um, and it, 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 using the Constitution as the as the yardstick by which to evaluate whether or not America is is sort of politically healthy, just strikes me as deeply misguided, you know, that that there's so much that is structurally uh, flawed in the system our constitutional set up, our constitution set up. So there are plenty of things that are not un- unconstitutional, um, but that are pretty awful, um, you know, and, and so it's, it's just the wrong measuring stick, you know, that, that it can be it can be a useful 
to stick with my my metaphor here, you know, it can be a useful tool nonetheless because we do have a system in which that is the reference point. And if you want to challenge executive behavior, you have to make reference to it if you want to litigate successfully. Um, but but I also think that it's it's sort of a distraction from the fundamental issue, which is that we have a you know corrupt kleptocratic president uh, who is you know, has embraced uh, crony crony capitalism of the, the worst sort. Um, and we are facing all kinds of significant economic and political problems here in the United States, many of which do not implicate constitutional issues at all. Um, but that should not reassure us. Uh, you know, the fact that something bumps up against constitutional limits is sort of neither here nor there with regard to whether we should be really, really upset about it. I really want to do a podcast with with just Rosa, um, maybe with video, so she could have like a, like a blackboard behind her, called The Constitution Sucks. And then Rosa would just take us through all the parts of the Constitution that need to be fixed. And then we could send this to all the states... And and it would su- suffice in, in lieu of a constitutional <laughs> right. convention. And it, we could, I could save them a little time we, by just we, giving them a list. We just says Rosa says change this, and then we could just send them like with, you know, an annotated version of the fixed constitution, the Rosa <laughs> the Rosa Brooks Constitution. As, From your lips to God's ears. It's it is. I'm sure James Madison is up in heaven someplace saying, "If only Rosa." <laughs> could fix my mistakes. Uh, but but it does seem to me, Evelyn, that we are, whether we're in a constitutional crisis or an ethical crisis, a moral morass, a political humdinger of a mess, that we are entering we just a period- with crisis. Crisis. Okay, we're in a crisis, <laughs> a, a generalized, non-specific crisis um, that... that that it's going to be increasingly harder as we get closer to the election for anything to get done in the United States, foreign domestic, but that the only options the United, the president's going to actually have to sort of flex his, you know, prove he exists is going to be international or unilateral measures out of the white, kind of like what happened with Obama. Um, but that's pretty worrisome because there's a bunch of messy places around the world right now that are teetering on the brink of turning into crises in their own right. And I, I might point out, or you might point out, or we might discuss, the fact that we continue not to have a defense secretary, not to have, well, though there was nominated it could be UN. just as well. <laughs> I'm beginning to think it's just as well. <laughs> well, no, well, maybe. No. Be, well, I mean, it could have been Tom Cotton, right? I mean, we could have. We could have ended up with a really bad uh, choice there, like we have now with a U.N. ambassador who was part of the coal lobby um, or a nominee. Uh, but there's just so many open positions. The government, you know, Trump's trying to prove that you don't need people to, you know, you don't need a government. Um, I don't know. It seems Well, he thinks that he just needs himself and a couple members of his family. Well, but it's, you know, it's it seems like he's it seems like. You know that's 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 what we're going to get for the next year. I I don't have a lot of faith that the Democrats are going to take really strong action. Do you? Strong action? You mean with regard to the 
the fact that he has all these vacancies and the way he's conducting his policy. Well, to fix any of this, the Democrats, I think, are just sort of sitting on their hands. Uh, well, I don't really know what they can do. I mean, let's be fair. You know, the, the other chamber, the one that I'm standing in right now, you know, has no interest in it doesn't appear to have any interest in reigning in the president, or at least when they do, when they get to the brink of it, they jump away from the brink. The best example is on the Yemen vote. I mean, you had a vote coming out of Congress. Basically, both chambers came together and said the United States should no longer support the war in Yemen. We should provide the logistical support that we've been providing to Saudi Arabia um, and perhaps UAE. But in any event, uh, we shouldn't be providing that support anymore. The president vetoed it, and and basically the Congress was unable to pull itself together to override the president's veto. They lost their will, and that obviously happened in the president's party, in the Republican Party. So uh, with that kind of situation, I, I, I can't blame the Democrats. They're doing the best they can. They're passing legislation in order to show the American people this is the kind of change you would get if you had more of us in Congress, right? Um, but there's not that much they can do if they can't convert the Republicans, win Republicans over to their positions. And that hasn't been possible thus far. Or at least not, not, not in enough numbers to count. Or again, when it really counted, the Republicans got afraid, became afraid of the president. Well, Rosenthal- Although Democrats, I, I did just want to add one, one thing there. Um, um, Democrats have additional options on things like the president's veto of the Yemen resolution. They could, for instance, go to court uh, and argue that that notwithstanding their inability to get a supermajority to override the veto, that under pretty well-established Supreme Court precedents, you know, Youngstown uh, sheet and tube, the, the steel seizure case, um, that President Trump uh, is is behaving in an unconstitutional manner. I mean, this is why I say, you know, the Constitution still matters as a litigation tool. You know, it shouldn't be our, our touchstone for ultimate morality or whether we're in a crisis. But, but you know, if Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats and, and those Republicans who joined the legislative majorities uh, uh, on the re- resolution prohibiting further U.S. military action in Yemen— wanted to go to the courts with this, they could, and they might very well win, you know, so it, it, they're not, they have additional options that they are currently choosing not to exercise. And, and I should add, I just recently signed on to a letter, uh, (laughs) having just made fun of letters because you can always get people to sign anything, but I just signed on to a letter with, with about, uh, 10 other, uh, law professors, um, urging, uh, Nancy Pelosi to do exactly that. Take them to court. Yeah. You know, I think there's another th- issue too that they could take them to court on, which is um, actually two: Global Magnitsky on the Khashoggi issue, yeah. and then also the automatic uh, requirement for the administration to take additional sanctions against Russia for the use of chemical weapons, the Novichok agent in the United Kingdom, the 1991 law on the books requires them to take action within three months they have failed to do that so that's another example but they don't seem to be willing to do this kind of thing in fact it compounds another thing that i was going to ask you about rosa which is 
you know, the, the Congress can declare somebody in contempt. The House can declare somebody in contempt. They can seek to enforce a subpoena. But typically that doesn't work very well. I mean, they, they you know, it's hard to enforce. Right, which is, which is, you know, the Constitution gives them additional options. <laughs> They're not choosing to exercise them. Uh, I've spoken in the past of constitutional rot as opposed to constitutional crisis. I think that's another example of, of just constitutional rot, where you have political actors who don't even have the political will to use the tools the Constitution does give them. Right, which is, I mean, I mean could, you know, they could go to court to attempt to enforce their own uh, in subpoenas for power, for instance, and contempt power. Uh, I don't think they're likely to do that. But don't you see there's something dangerous in the inaction? Sure. You know, you know that that if the, Trump just says, oh, I can get away with this and he gets away with it and he ignores subpoenas and he doesn't supply information. He ignores laws like the ones you've mentioned, does whatever the heck he wants. Democrats say, well, we'll resolve this at the ballot box. Then they lose or, or you know, or no, they, no, I think it's, you, I think it's if, extremely dangerous. I, I, I guess I just think that arguing about whether or not it's a constitutional crisis in some ways is a is a distraction from exactly how dangerous it is, even if it's not unconstitutional. You know, I don't really care if it's constitutional or not. It's it's still horrible. Yeah, but I want to be clear. I never argue with you about whether it's a constitutional crisis. I believe you are always correct. I just consider this to be a, a theme that we return to periodically. I just didn't want but you to... But if you, if, if you guys read how democracies die, though, those guys would argue if the Democrats start... Uh, escalating, you know, the political measures against the president, that it will continue to erode democracy, that there's that the way out of it is actually to be to, to exercise forbearance, to be to behave as Nancy Pelosi has behaved thus far, that you don't want to uh, start this escalating cycle because ultimately you have no long then you have no ability to cr create a middle ground and and compromise and consensus that that having studied other countries and the united states let's not fool ourselves it's a country made up of a bunch of humans um is is no different from other countries that are that have experienced democratic crises and and have ultimately experienced the loss of democracy so we could be facing that if we don't handle this carefully I'd be interested in your reaction to that, Rosa, but my reaction to it is it is a mistake to think that the only mechanisms of of uh, enforcing the laws or standards or constitution within a society are, are, are in a democracy or democratic elections and that using the system of the courts, using the legislature, uh, using other kinds of mechanisms is part of what it is to be a democracy and that by not using those, you weaken those elements of a democracy and thus, uh, the, you know, no, you know inv true. invited a different kind of a problem. Yeah, I think that's true. I agree. Well, that doesn't really help having a lively conversation if you agree with me. <laughs> Every now and then I agree. <laughs> You're absolutely right, David. Uh, oh, my God. I hear that so infrequently. Um, Ian, could we just replay that over and over after I leave? I just, In fact, you're absolutely right, David. I would like to have as a ringtone, you know, because it's, it's the only time and I haven't taught my dog how to talk yet. Um, 
And because he would parrot. No, he would agree with me. He's a very he's a very smart he's a very very smart um, dog. Um, so, you know, we 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 are in the in the midst of this mess um, uh, for the foreseeable future, and there is no um, break. But having said that, one of the highlights over the next couple of weeks is likely to be, um, and this is going to be my last question: the appearance of Robert Mueller before some congressional body, probably the House Judiciary Committee. Um, and I would like to know, uh, Evelyn and then Rosa, in the event that Robert Mueller were to appear before uh, you, what question you would ask him? Oh, wow. Um, I think I would ask him to... Explain to me, does, I would ask him, what does he know about data, polling data that was shared with Russians either by Paul Manafort through Kilimnik or by Cambridge Analytica or Jared Kushner or any other actor, and whether that information was used then to target voters through Facebook and other social media? That would be one question I would ask him. That's a good because, question. Yeah. He, he, because he, he, he has told us he doesn't know enough to bring a criminal case against anyone. But I want to know what he knows, everything he knows. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good one. And I frankly think one of the areas we have not heard enough about was the central counterintelligence component of this whole thing. What about you, Rosa? What, what, what should we be at? Because I, I worry, you know, these demo, these people get in these hearings and they like pontificate for four and a half minutes and then they say, and I have one other question. What did you have for lunch? And then we like missed the whole thing. Yeah. Well, the question which I would love to have Mueller ask and to have him answer, but, but I suspect he will not answer, would be as follows. Uh, if Donald Trump was not the sitting president of the United States, and you had the same evidence with regard to obstruction of justice, would you have recommended indictment? Um, and, and I suppose B, um, again, if Donald Trump is not the sitting president of the United States, um, given the information that you did find relating to conspiracy um, and collaboration with the Russians, you know, while we understand that you said that you didn't find enough to potentially move forward with criminal charges. Uh, did you find enough to make you believe that additional investigation is warranted on those issues? Uh, and of course, we would all like to know what the, uh, uh, of the many other dozen or so other investigations that spun off from the Mueller investigation, um, most of which are still, the, the subjects of which are not known publicly, you know, what, what exactly are those, uh, or at any rate, even if he can't reveal all of the details, what subject matters and individuals do they relate to? I, but by the way, you, you hit two really good points. I, as I was actually coming here, I was thinking about what would you ask? And one of the questions that crossed my mind was what you just said. And he would probably say he would not answer that. And then, you know, I want to answer hypothetical. And then you say, well, do you believe anybody is above the law? And he would say no. And then you would say, do you um, feel that the charges that you brought um, 
uh, uh, you know, ought to be involved or would be involved with any other American in a in a in a, a, a some kind of judiciary setting, and he would probably say yes. And then you say, so if OLC prohibits it, do you believe that then the Congress should consider this? Because I think that's sort yeah. of where where where, yeah. you, where where that goes. But yeah, in, in in terms of the other, there is actually two lines, and and uh, I, I I noticed them in the Mueller report, and then I noticed over the weekend David from underscore them um, of David from the Atlantic. But you know the two lines say. If we had additional resources and could dig further on the collusion issue, uh, we believe we likely would have found more. Um, and and so it sort of responds to your point. And so I think my question would be, what were the constraints and guidelines you were operating under? Uh, were you given a timeline? Were you urged to end this? Were there areas that were considered outside the bounds? Did anybody, including... Uh, 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 Rod Rosenstein or Whitaker or Barr at any time delimit where your investigation could jo- go. Because I think, you know, I mean, what happened to money laundering? What happened to his overseas financial ties? Well, and uh, we don't know if those are some of the things that got spun off to other investigations. I think so. those are in the Southern District, yeah. Well, that's, but I think we deserve to know, right? I mean, is it, um, is it? I would also like to know how he feels about Barr calling his letter snitty. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's snitty and written by some staffer, you know. I mean, it was like he was trying to dismiss it in every possible way. Though you got to admit, you know, as Barr goes, having 370 former prosecutors from both parties come out and say this is prosecutable is essentially having 370 prosecutors call and come out and say bar you're a hack you know bar your decision was wrong we don't agree with you and we're going to put our reputations on the line that's i don't recall that kind of thing ever happening before dead silence apparently no one else <laughs> No, 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 no. no, we don't recall it either. Yeah, no. Well, then none of the none of us do. Well, okay. Look, that's it for another exciting week here. We've run out of time. I'd love to continue going on with this. We will have much exciting stuff to come in the week to come. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. There you'll get all sorts of things, uh, threads, other podcasts. Later this week, we're going to introduce some new. Uh, fun things with video. We've got this new, the unredacted from DSR podcast um, with um, Philippe Rhinus and Molly Junkfast and Emily Brandwin and this week with Rick Wilson. So that's something else to listen to. There's a lot there. And of course, we would appreciate it if you go and sign up and become a member and uh, uh, help support the work that we're doing here at Deep State Radio as we grow and we keep growing and as we do new things. Because we do it all for you. And it would be really, really ungrateful of you to just take this and give back nothing in return. And you would feel terrible about yourself. And we don't want that to happen because we love you. Goodbye. <laughs> have, a, have, a, have a... Wow. Have a, yeah. Well, look, whatever works, okay? We'll, we try. Okay. Uh, goodbye. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Bye, Rosa. Everybody. We'll see everybody soon. Thank you, guys. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where.